You know the Lord's Prayer, right? It's really the disciples' prayer. There's a part in that prayer that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've heard that parsed out in different ways. But here's, way, here's my simple um, interpretation of that. What does God want? It's his will. What does God want? What does he desire? And it's built around his kingdom, that the kingdom of God would permeate our world. Well, how does that happen? Jesus gave a lot of parables, and he started with, and the kingdom of God is likened unto, right? Not only does he do that, in a personal conversation with Nicodemus, he looks at him and he makes it a kingdom thing. He says, you know, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot, two things, see the kingdom of God, and you can't enter the kingdom of God. You can't even discern what God's kingdom is about let alone be brought into it unless you're born again. So the kingdom of God has to be connected and somehow be, to being born again, right? You think about the parable of the sower. Jesus gives that parable, I think Mark 4 is one of the places that he, he gives that parable, and the four different soils. And, and afterwards, the disciples are asking him, you know, what, what does that mean? And uh, he, he says something of this nature. Um, the kingdom of God is presented to you. You can have the mystery and the wonder of the kingdom of God, but to those outside of that revelation, it's revealed to them in parables. In other words, he said, people have to discern what I'm saying. The kingdom of God is in those parables. And like I said, more than one time, he said the kingdom of God is likened to uh, a mustard seed. as one of the places. A mustard seed, smallest seed, when it's planted, grows into a big tree and and it provides haven for birds. He says, that's the kingdom of God. It doesn't have to have a, a big splash. It can just be a, a tiny a step of faith. And he says, the kingdom of God, the power of God, the rule of God, the authority of God penetrates a person's life. Um, he's king of kings and lord of lords. And he's told us that we are now a kingdom of priests. So... What he's done, he's brought us into his kingdom, right? We're part of the kingdom of God. I'm going to take you to 2 Corinthians 5 here in just a moment. But once we're born again, like Nicodemus, we are now in the kingdom of God. We, we are now a participant in the kingdom of God. And God is not collecting trophies. He's bringing people into his kingdom work. I've titled this tonight, The Greatest Work That You and I Can Put Our Hands To. The greatest work that we can be about. Jesus even said the kingdom of God is not external, right? He said the kingdom of God is going to be where? In the heart. He said my kingdom is not an external kingdom right now. We're not trying to set up a government. He says, right now, I want to rule in the hearts of people. And Paul elaborates on that when he starts talking about in Romans where people are, you know, we don't do this, where people make a big deal about what you eat and how you dress and, and stuff you do. We don't, we don't do that. 
But he said, he come to this conclusion. He says, but the kingdom of God is not meat or drink. It's not the external, he said, but it's this. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's an internal. All that Paul does, he takes what Jesus said, and that the kingdom of God is not an external structure. It's an internal presence of the power of God in our lives that produces righteousness, peace, and joy from the Holy Spirit. So we're supposed to be about this kingdom. We're supposed to be a participant in this kingdom that Christ rules in by his power, his anointing, the accompanying presence of the Holy Spirit. And when you get into uh, Paul's second letter to the believers at Corinth in chapter 5, this is a great chapter, by the way, um, he starts off this chapter talking about death, about this tabernacle that's going to be folded up. It's, you know, there's going to be a place where we step out of this into an eternal realm. And, but before it's over with, he dives into some really neat, neat things. And I'm going to start reading in verse 14, um, where he says, For Christ's love compels us. If you're King James, Christ's love constraineth us. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them, and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We're not supposed to anyway. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So we don't evaluate him by our standards. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. <clears throat> that used to be our name for our youth, right? CAs. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And in the last statement in this chapter, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to take you a little bit ahead of verse 14 to verse 11 because I think it really has a powerful point. Like I said, he's talking about the transition from this life to another life and how that works at the start of this chapter. Before he gets through with it, he talks about what we're supposed to do while we're here. What is supposed to be the dynamics by which controls us and permeates our lives? This is his whole point. He says, yes, we have a glory. We have another place to be. But in the meantime, what are we doing? In the meantime, what are we doing with what God has done in us? And verse 11 is very uh, neat because he talks about, I, I think the King James says, knowing therefore the, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, right? Is that what he says? 
talks about that, that the awe of the Lord. NIV goes like this, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. And this happens to be about our involvement in convincing people, right? That we're supposed to be convincing people, persuading people. I thought about this, you know, what was it, February, Brenda? 1972, it, it did have a diamond in it. Just take my word for it. Her engagement ring did have a diamond. It was there. You just had to. But I was going to give, uh, do the question, will you marry me? Now, I want to tell you something. If I had any doubt whether she would say yes, I would have not done that. <laughs> and those people who, like, were not sure why, that's a, that's a step of faith. Because, you know, I wouldn't want to say, no, no, wow, you, I wasn't expecting this. But when I proposed to her in February of 1972, I was, I was already convinced. I told my mother that Christmas holiday, I says, I, I think I met the person I'm supposed to marry. And, oh, she got all excited. And then I told her her name is Brenda Joyce. Then she's like, it's of God. Because my oldest sister's name is Brenda Joyce. She's like, oh, I'm getting another Brenda Joyce. That's wonderful. But that's where, you know, we, we know how persuasion that is, right? When we're in a relationship like that, we, we want to do our best to persuade the person that we feel like we need to marry. That This is, this is God's will. We, we do very good at that kind of persuasion. But he's talking about something similar but in a different direction. He says, we persuade men. We persuade people. You got that? We, are, we actively persuade people. It's the word pytho. It's an interesting word. It means, when you look it up, it means to convince by becoming friends, by gaining favor with someone, to gain one's goodwill or seek to win one, strive to please one, it is a convincing element, but it's a convincing element not from an argument standpoint, but from, from an embracing the worth of what's there in order to get your point across. He said, knowing the awe of God, that should press us to persuade people. And it's in, you know, you look this up and, you know, Shelby, I got that collection, the, the symbols of God that I could look the word up, look at all the times it was in the New Testament, and it has like all kinds, about 30-something different conjugations of that verb. And this one is the only time in the entire New Testament that is conjugated this way. It's first-person plural, indicative, active, present, meaning this. We don't try to persuade. I, I really don't like the way the NIV, we, we try to persuade. We are actively, continually persuading someone to come to Jesus. And I think what we, 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 don't, we don't obey that verb. 
Because we like, how many times we said, well, I tried. I tried talking to them. They turned me down. But that's not that verb. That's not the call. This is not what he's telling the people in court. They knew when he wrote this, they knew what he was talking about. He said, I'm not asking you to try. I want you to be continually, actively trying to gain friendship with someone, gain their favor, get in a place where you have an opportunity to continually convince them that Jesus is the way for them. Does that change that, that verse for you? Let me, let me ask you to do some, a mental exercise right now. Because I did this when I'm, I'm thought, okay, who do I know enough that I feel like I've gained, that I know they're not a believer? I know they're not a believer, okay? There's no question about it. Who have I had enough interaction with that I know that's not a believer that I believe I have enough capital to tell them that Jesus is their salvation and to trust him for their salvation and to preach the cross or to share the cross and to share the gospel message knowing that it's not a high risk. They may turn me down, but I believe I have an open door. And two names came to my mind immediately. And it almost made me well, it did make me say, Lord, I'm sorry. I haven't, I haven't tried to seal the deal on these people. And then a couple other people dropped <laughs> in my mind. So I'm, I'm going to have to orchestrate some follow-up. But when you think that, does anyone specifically come to your mind that I believe I have enough credibility with them and they know my sincerity I know they're not a believer. This one guy just recently interacted with him again, and he's, he feels very free to use whatever language he wants around me. We're, we're that comfortable, or he's that comfortable. And I, it, it never, it doesn't bother me because I know he's not a believer. His language is not his biggest deal. Someone's drinking habits is not their biggest deal we sometimes make it that that if they stop doing this they stop doing that that would go all the ways to them getting saved and we know that you can stop doing all that and that doesn't mean you're going to get saved and I thought about it and I was like man why haven't I followed up with him before I said, because he, he trusts me I know that he trusts me I know that I've built up some favor with him and I says, I, I know who I'm going to be meeting for breakfast. Have you got somebody? I'm not asking you. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I'm going to go for it. Especially after thinking about this, knowing that we're all going to stand before God, knowing that we're going to give an account of ourselves as his children as to what we did with what he gave us to do, which before you get through this chapter, you'll realize that he really has put something mighty in our hands. And he's going to hold us accountable as to what we do with it. We're going to, and, and also for other people that we're going to be accountable for, and they're going to be accountable for themselves. It says we should be trying to persuade them. We should be actively trying to persuade them. 
So verse 14 kind of makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? When you think about it, he says, therefore knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We try to convince them of their need for the Lord. For Christ's love compels us. He doesn't say you have to love them enough to speak the word of the Lord. He says his love has to be in us enough to compel us to do it. That's a big difference, is it not? It'd be good if we did love them enough to risk uh, like, well, here it goes. <laughs> and people say, well, I don't want to push them away. They're already away. Already away. And there's a way to do it without coming across like, I've got it all figured out. But that book out there on that table, Hope Beyond Brokenness, is a perfect opportunity to talk to. But there's all kinds of people who are broken. There's all kinds of people who have such a broken life. And God's going to put people right in our path, right in our path. And do we have enough of the fear of the Lord that compels us to persuade them? That takes us past our inhibitions and our, you know, our disclaimers. We, we're really good at this. Well, that's not my calling. Yes, it is. I'm sorry, it is. He doesn't parse this out. This is not one of the gifts of the Spirit. This is the, our, this is the essence of who we are. We're in the kingdom of God. It's not our love for people. It's when Christ's love permeates our hearts, compelling us. Look in verse 15. And he died for all. Amen. <laughs> he died for all. You know, what, what did uh, Kayla talk about last week? You know, what, what a, we talked about this at our Thursday morning um, Hardy's group. That Jesus died for those people who had these mass killings. He died for everybody. He died for everybody. It doesn't matter what the, the greatness of their sin. He died for everybody. And, and this is the point he's making. Everybody's in the same deal. <clears throat> he died for all that those who should live, should those who live should not live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And what he says is our life is not about us anymore. It's about him. I mean, you say, well, what about my dreams? What about my plans? What about my hopes? What about what I want to do? And in a good way, it says, what about it? Still, you know, the live dead journal that I went through, and the lady who felt God called her and her husband and family, got small children, to Somalia until somebody in church says, you know, are you prepared for your children to be orphaned if something happens to you? And all of a sudden, the the fear of that and the dread of that will, you know, I'm, all, I'm willing to give my life, but man, now that you put it in the context that my kids won't have their parents, and she started wrestling with it, Lord, did we really hear you? Did, 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 is this just us? I mean, I, I don't want to have, leave my children without us. I don't want to put them in that place. And here she says the Lord gave her two words, all die. Your children can be without you by an accident on McFarland. Because you stay 
doesn't mean you're without risk. And she thought about it and says, would I rather face that reality of being where God wants me to be and risking something like that or staying where it's really not where God wants me to be, but I feel better, more secure. You know, it's our processing of things. Of, I don't want a high risk thing. Lord, just give me something that is not too difficult. And this is what he's talking about, that we shouldn't live for ourselves. We should, but for him who died for them, we should live for him who died for us and was raised again. And then we go to verse 17. And, and this, is the, <clears throat> this is the beginning of a phenomenal word, a phenomenal idea that permeates the rest of this chapter. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... You know, King James says he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This transformation that when we're in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come, and he explains this greater in verse 18. All this is from God, and this transformation that he's talking about is nothing short of being reconciled to God. The old being gone and the new coming is part of the effect of reconciliation. That when we're reconciled and we're made right with God, that dynamic releases the old out of our lives and brings new into our lives. The new dynamic of his life. But watch this. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Think about this. God not only reconciled you and I to him, not counting our sins against us, reconciled us to him and turns around and says, now I want you to be part of this reconciliation for others. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, how does that work? The following verse, again, starts elaborating even more. That God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The NIV reads, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message, not only the ministry of reconciliation, but he's given us the message of reconciliation isn't that pretty neat, not counting people's sins against them? Choosing not to hold our sins over our head. Isn't that great? Now, others may hold your sins over your head, but not God. You know, the neat thing between... 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, the whole thing about the gifts of the Spirit and the operation of the Spirit and prophecy and speaking in tongues and all of this has this chapter of love right between the two of them. And he says, love does not keep a record of wrong. Well, it's not supposed to. And he says, God, what has God done? And I've said this before, you won't ever find in the Bible where God 
forgets your sins. He does say this. He will remember them no more. And so, well, that's the same thing. No less, no less, no less. No, it's not. It's not. It's not the same thing. Forget can almost be accidentally, right? But he chooses not to bring it up. And some people say, forgive and forget. Right. When you tell people to forget that you did something, it's almost like it blazes in their mind. If you hadn't told me to forget, then I would have probably forgotten about it. Now you make me think about it. And when you read in the psalm that talks about he removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west, he makes it specifically that it's not a removal from him. It's a removal from you. That he removes from you your sin. He's the, he doesn't have an issue with your sin. Why? Why? He said, well, of course he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Your sin has been paid for. He just waits for you to accept it. His sin, the sin that you have in front of you, and I've said this before, the sin that you have from, you know, this moment in time forward, has he died for that sin? Well, how many of your sins when he died on the cross were all future? I think they were all future. And what we get, we get into this time thing that God measures our, his forgiveness based on our performance. When it clearly states in the scripture that he is the propitiation in 1 John 2 of our sins, he's atoning sacrifice. That's what that word means, that he covers it. He takes upon himself our sin. This last verse is going to tell you about that. He took upon himself our sin, our judgment, and not only our sin, but the sins of the entire world. Everything, all sin was dumped on him. Not sin up to today, but all sin forever. And all people have to do is receive it. And he chooses not to hold it over you. Praise the Lord. That's what he's saying. He does not count that against people. He does not count people's sins against them. Isn't that what it says? And then turns around and says, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. It's, it's the song, we, the first song. He has paid the highest price. He, he paid for it. He paid for our wrong because he knew we, could, we couldn't. That we couldn't do enough good. This is where Islam is so, so uh, strenuous on people, is that they feel like your good deeds are going to be weighed against your bad deeds, and it's how that that scale balances out. That hopefully, when it's all said and done, your good is going to outweigh the bad. You know, I passed Jehovah Witnesses, and I talked to him. But you know, the reason why they're passing out Watchtower and, and out there and they got their little display is that, that that's part of how they get in. That, that's, that's the Jehovah's kingdom. Is they, got, they got to do all of that. They got to pass out X number of Watchtowers. It's, it's a struggle. Well, how, how many do you have to get in there? Well, they don't know, but they're just trying. 
And what a relief it is to know that God, God doesn't work that way. Because there's nothing, we can't do enough. And this is what he's, this is, this is what he's getting across to these people in Corinth. Is no matter what you've done, these were, they, they, they had a horrible lifestyle they came out of. He said, but it doesn't matter. All of that's covered. The horrible sin, the horrible sin of a mass killing was atoned for on the cross. All sin was atoned for on the cross. I don't know. Brenda and I watched it again because Theodore Robert Bundy was very is, is a, a close reality to us because we lived in Lake City when Kimberly Leach disappeared off that junior high school campus. And that city searched and searched. And a friend of mine who was chaplain when they found her body had to go to the, her parents' home and says, we found her. And it turned out to be the last victim of Ted Bundy. Who knows when James Dobson sat down with him in the Stark prison, the eve before they was going to electrocute him. And some people will say, he's just playing James Dobson. He's just controlling the... the, the he's still getting his publicity. And yet he opened up with James Dobson. The only thing he would not reference is Kimberly Leach when he brought her, brought her up. But who, let me ask you this. Is it possible, is it remotely possible that before that man was executed, he realized the gravity of his sins and asked God to forgive him? Is it remotely possible that the Lord forgave him? Of course it is. Don't know if that happened. But there's people who would say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair. I'm telling you, Lake City, fast food places, they called it Bundy fries. Special on Bundy fries, a fry. I mean, that, if the people in that city could have got a hold of them, they, they didn't have to do an execution. But it's just like the, the, the vilification of him was so intense and I'm sure there's people who says God would have never forgiven him. Yes, he would have if he came to the reality of the gravity of his sin and cried out to God for forgiveness and redemption. Isn't that what he's saying? That he doesn't count people's sins against them when they trust him, when they believe on him? If you hadn't gotten the idea that he wants you and me to be a part of this stuff, watch the last two verses here. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We employ you on Christ's behalf. King James says in Christ's stead. In, in, him, in place of him who is not here personally, but he's here through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, be reconciled to God. That is the message that he says he's given us, that we cry out to people be reconciled to God. God is open for reconciliation. He wants you to know him. He wants you to experience his life. He wants you to experience hope and peace and healing in your life. He wants you to know him. He died on the cross for you. He was raised from the dead to break every bondage off your life. There is no explanation in Teen Challenge Centers around the world, how heron addicts get off a heron by prayer. 
not by another drug. By people gathering around them and praying and seeking God, if it's 24 hours, 48 hours, and pray until that is delivered from their life. In a remarkable story, I think maybe it's in Run, Baby, Run, where a, a, a girl that was a prostitute because of her habit was delivered from heroin. And these guys held her down and gave her a shot of heroin, thinking that it's going to propel her back into her old business because she was out on the streets witnessing. It didn't affect her. And then people started bringing, whether they're Jewish, whatever, started bringing in their kids that they couldn't get off of this stuff to teen challenges. We hear that heroin is not a, a death knell, that what we've told, nobody gets off of heroin, they just die. Can you help my son? Can you help my daughter? And they just started bringing people to that Teen Challenge Center. There's no explanation for that other than the power of God. Be reconciled to God. Let God change your life. Let God deliver you. He will deliver you. He will heal you. He will set you free from the bondages. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Sin in our place, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a great exchange, right? What does it say in James? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much based on whose righteousness? Huh? Not ours. <laughs> but when we read that, we think, I'm going to have to be a really holy person. <laughs> I'm going to have to really up my holiness, which I don't know if there's degrees of holiness. <laughs> we might think there's degrees of holiness. But it's not our, our righteousness. The person who recognizes they have an open channel to God through his blood can cry out for people and believe that he's hearing your prayer. It's not your performance. It's based on what he did for us and our reception of what he did for us. He became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become, what a phenomenal thought, the righteousness of God, not our righteousness, the righteousness of God birthed in us, that we become the righteousness of God in him, not in ourselves. And we pray, when we, when we pray that way, when we, when we recognize that I have an audience with God because of what Jesus has done in my life, I don't have to read my Bible more and be nicer and kinder and and maybe when I get to where I'm a really super-duper person, God's going to hear my prayers. Regrettably, I think sometimes we reduce it to that. We reduce it to our performance. I can tell you this. I just believe this. The more we tap into the presence of God, the less we think about our qualifications to be there. And we get so overwhelmed by his grace that qualified us to be in his presence. That set us apart in his righteousness and holiness. 
that we can have an audience with him, not because what we've done, but because what he's done in us. It releases us from trying to create this better setting for us to hear from God when he just wants us to trust him, to depend on him, to know that he's listening. I said something about this little Courtney. And by the way, I hope she's going to be here for fall festival. You know, one of our Waffle House waitresses down here, and she's been to our other fall festivals. We just, that woman is so close. I don't know, maybe she's already come to Jesus, but, you know, she talked about how God has answered the prayers we prayed for her a couple weeks ago, and she's so amazed that God is restoring broken relationships in her family with her grandmother, her sister, and and I just was, she was telling me, she said, just puts chills on me thinking that y'all prayed for me last week and all this is starting to happen. I said, listen, do you really think that he died, that he cared enough for you and me when we were sinners to die on the crossroads that, that he would care less about your family? That, that he wouldn't also care about your struggles? And here I just think that God is opening his, his world to her. And how many people do we cross paths with that may be in this open, this, they're open to receiving that kind of message? I hope the Lord spoke to you about somebody I have favor with enough that I believe I can persuade them and go for it. To simply say, hey, he died for you. Aren't you ready to accept him? Aren't you ready to surrender your life to him? And, and let's see what God does with it. Can you do that? Praise God. Let's stand together.